Welcome to Meet the Blue Greeners. This is our employee podcast where we get to know the people in the company and what they do. I'm your host, Gabe Rosman. Today we are joined by a very special guest, one of the pillars, but one of the original members of the Blue Green Company, Gotti Weiss. Welcome to the to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. So, uh, what's your uh, what's your story? Where do you come from? <sighs> well, back in the day, many years ago, before Blue Green was even a a thought, a plan, or anything. I met uh, Moishik uh, in the Hebrew University uh, in uh, Professor Aaron Kaplan's lab. He was doing his doctorate. I was doing uh, my first degree in biology, and I was working for him when uh, he did his research. He finished uh, his uh, doctorate, went on. Uh, I stayed to uh, continue with my second and third uh, degree. And we kept in touch. And one day he gave me an offer I couldn't refuse. And I'm here ever since. So um, how did you develop a a blue-green thumb? I just came up with that right now, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Blue-green thumb. Well, Moishik's research back in the day was about uh, how to kill cyanobacteria, something uh, we may uh, relate to. And my field of research was uh, similar. So most of my uh, days in the university, in the academy, I grew uh, green stuff, cyanobacteria mostly, and then I tried to kill them. Naturally, after that, I came over here. You were doing a, a PhD in, at Hebrew University in, I guess, what would be the field of microbiology? Yes, environmental microbiology mostly the connection or the interaction of cyanobacteria with other organisms uh, in its surroundings. Like uh, what what organisms? Bacteria, mostly. Um, I looked for uh, bacteria that uh, dwell uh, era in the bloom uh, time, isolated them, and tried to see if any of those uh, that I found can harm or have any impact on cyanobacteria. Uh, to my surprise, well, not really, I was looking for it, but I was happy to find three of them that were very active against cyanobacteria. Later that I, later, I learned that they're actually the same one after genetic uh, testing. So I continued on with that one. I grew it in, in large uh, amounts and it was able to isolate a material uh, that was active against cyanobacteria. So this is really, I mean, your work is really related to, to what you studied. And, and I want to kind of go into that a little bit more. But I have kind of a question, a scientific question, uh, while, while we have a professional here, which is there seems to be this notion that cyanobacteria is bad. I mean, that's what we're treating. But it's not always bad, right? No, not at all. Cyanobacteria belongs there. It, it dwells in the environment. It was there before, well, pretty much everything else. I always say when I give uh, lectures or uh, talk about it, take a deep breath. 50% of it was cyanobacteria. They belong in the environment. They produce a lot of the oxygen we use. They are part of the natural ecosystem. The problem is not that they're there, and we're not trying to eliminate them altogether. We're trying to prevent a phenomenon uh, referred to as a bloom, when a species, mostly one, takes over 
and pushes out everybody else from the environment. That is an unnatural uh, state of uh, events, and that's what we're trying to prevent. And what leads to that unnatural state of events? Well, first and foremost, cyanobacteria is a bacteria. It's a bacterial infection. They grow extremely fast. Uh, when they're happy and they have good conditions, they, they can duplicate every three to four hours. Everything else is much slower. So imagine that you have a, a, a lake that has a room for growth and you have a really fast, rapid growing organism. Of course, it's going to catch. Of course, it's going to take over and it won't leave any room for everybody else. So, I mean, we, we jumped right into to the science, and uh, but I do want to get to know more about you and your background. I understand that um, that during your PhD at Hebrew University, you were also a TA of probably the most, um, how do I put this, ridiculous course? Or is that how you would put it? No, no, no. It's not the most ridiculous course. Uh, be honest. We've both been in these courses. We've both been in the Hebrew University. We know of more true. Uh, ridiculous ones. So I actually met Gadi a long time ago. I recognized him at the orientation for the Blue Green because he was my TA in a, a very interesting course that was called Astrobiology. Now, if you're wondering what astrobiology is, after taking the course, I'm still not entirely sure, but uh, maybe Gadi can shed a little light on that. Well, as it names a uh, hint, astrobiology, life's on different planets. But since Earth is the only planet we know of that they have life, let's take that as a study model to figure out what should we pay attention to? What are the parameters relevant to life as we know them? Using that as our only case of study, we made a course about it. Actually, there, there is one thing that I, that I remember that, uh, really liking this, this idea from the course, and that's the Goldilocks effect. Right, we that was from your course, where like all with Goldilocks, the story of Goldilocks and the three bears, and one soup was too hot, one was too cold, and then there was the just right. So they say when looking for a star that could potentially host life, it's like the Goldilocks effect. It needs to be just the right away, right distance away from a sun. It needs to have all these different uh, parameters that make it just right for life to occur. And then they they named it the Goldilocks effect. Well, yes. If we take uh, the liquid, uh, the water in liquid form as a parameter that's uh, essential to life, again, as we know them, um, if you're too close, it won't, it's going to be too hot and it won't be liquid, it's going to be steam. If you're too far, it's going to be frozen solid. So just in between, uh, not too hot, not too cold. And I'll let you in on a little secret. Biologists are not very original uh, giving names. They like either using, just calling it in different names. They feel better about it, like cyanobacteria. It's just Greek, but it sounds very scientific. Um, Goldilocks. There's the Red Queen theory, too. That's a... Yep, yep. We've, we've, gone, we've gone into a bit of a tangent here, but but I like it. This was bound to happen with uh, with me and you. But I do want to get back to to your story because, I mean, your story with the company is is very interesting because you were here from the early days, 
So what can you tell us, what was it like in, in the early days of the, of the Blue Green Company? Back in my days, well, you, you keep mentioning that we need protocols and we need data analysts and to put it up, to upload data in a proper way and such. We didn't have anything. We were making things up as we went along. A lot of information, a lot of things we discovered as we did, as we went along, figured out when to treat, how much to treat, how to get our material from one place to another. Um, what measurements can we do and what is even relevant for us? All that we learned in the field while doing the treatments. That was the, that was the beginning. We had an idea, we had a prototype, and then we went out and just tried it out. But in terms of like logistics and I mean, just the, the overall atmosphere, I mean, who, who was in the company when, when you started? How big was it? <sighs> How big was it? About two or three people. Uh, there was a Yal, mostly in Germany. Every once in a while, he came to Israel. Um, my main point of contact was Moishik, was and still is. Um, our offices, our research center, are a lot of uh, the pictures and videos we have from the early days we use in presentations and conferences and brochures and all were done in his backyard. I still have an image, a, a short video of me throwing copper sulfate into the water while taking a picture with my phone. And you can see my reflection in the glass over there. Moshik is still upset, uh, I'm sure, about uh, uh, copper sulfate spillage in his backyard uh, next to his uh, Nana patch and has uh, issues growing now. Nana is, uh, is mint. Um, but ever since, we moved over here and... Now I can play uh, away from his uh, means. So I'm going to ask you a really tough question right now and, and take your time answering it. Seven. You ready? What's your job? My job is to do everything Moshik needs me to do. Actually, you answered that pretty succinctly. So what, is, what does that entail? And, and how has that evolved through time? It started with not having too many people around. And we needed to fill various uh, roles in the company. So I was in logistics, uh, research and development, uh, applications, sales, and everything we needed somebody to do. And we didn't have anyone else to do. So I was involved in it one way or another. With time and as the company grew and more work we needed, then we, our real, realization that we cannot just dump everything on a few people. It wasn't just me. Um, and we do need people that specialize in those fields. Would it be marketing or sales or logistics and all of that? We got to a point that we couldn't uh, pulling it out of our sleeves. We hired more people and that's how we grew. Uh, with that, my job evolved. Every time there was somebody specializing in a particular role, it moved over to them. And I did other things. They always find new things for me to do. So it's not not necessarily your life got any easier. It's just... Uh, oh, no. Just changed. Oh, yeah. Just changed. Uh, one of the things I like about working here, it's never boring. There is always something new. And 
to a point that if I ever get used to something, uh, to doing something in a particular way, I shouldn't worry uh, in a little while, it's probably going to change and we'll have something else uh, to add to it. So what, what other things uh, occupy your, your day-to-day routine? Well, besides our uh, move now, you won't see it, you won't hear it, uh, but uh, you can see the boxes behind. Besides our uh, upcoming move to uh, our new offices in Modin, two main uh, fields uh, are my focus at the moment. One, uh, training, uh, working uh, with OR in order to do Blue Green Academy uh, videos, transforming my lectures uh, and lectures that we gave into something uh, that can be shared over and over on our websites. And uh, regulation, which is how to registrate our materials in different parts of the world. What are the regulations? What are the restrictions? What forms we should fill? All of that is something we need to know. And I'm working on it. But you also partake in treatments and in the research in R&D department. Oh, yeah. I never left that part. I'm still there. New people that came in help a lot in clearing out my time or sharing the load or things that we didn't have the manpower, the women, we didn't have the personnel to perform, to do, kind of were, were left out. Now that we have more individuals working on them, it allows us to go more in depth into those uh, fields. And you also spend a lot of times flying abroad. What are you doing when you when you go overseas? Well, it depends. Um, I went to train um, our personnel uh, in Florida, uh, well, in the States and uh, in South uh, Africa. I went uh, over to, uh, you could say train in Florida, uh, watch over or keep an eye on uh, new uh, facilities of production uh, around the world to make sure that they produce our materials in the way we would like them to and uh, that they abide by our uh, instructions and uh, and guidelines. At the moment, I've been to the very first production of our materials in South Africa, in Ohio, and in Houston, which are main uh, factories uh, at the moment. Well, literally wrote the protocol of how to produce our material and how to uh, test for uh, uh, test for its quality afterwards, go to those factories to keep an eye, to get a first impression of how they work, mostly to be available if there is anything coming up or any question, I don't want it to receive it in an email with a seven-hour delay, not understanding what they want. They want to be there on the spot to be able to help them uh, if needed. Oh, yeah, one more. And treatment. When we have a large project, all hands on deck, go on a deck. So, so then you uh, you flew with a team to Florida and treated a body of water there. How did that go? Well, as a lot of things happened, I got a phone call from Moishik saying, Gadi, I need you to come. So I was waiting for a final answer. If I'm going or not, it was up in the air. We were waiting for uh, the powers that be to sign the contract and have it approved and actually fulfill uh, what they asked and so we at one point 20 minutes after i landed i was already in the canal in the c43 uh, canal uh, trying to see where am i and what am i supposed to do here 
And that's how we started uh, our uh, two-week-long uh, treatment uh, in that area. And, uh, and the treatment was a, a big success. Yes. We achieved what they wanted us to do. They started with one idea and then they changed their mind and changed the scope of uh, whatever it is we were supposed to do, which is fine. They're the client. But we needed to adjust on the spot to a different type of uh, treatment than what we expected in the first place. And their problem was that cyanobacteria stinks, literally. It just smells terrible when you have a bloom that you don't treat and it just rots. People there live no more than three, four meters away from the water line. It was a huge political issue, a huge public problem, and we helped solving it by, well, fixing the water. We had once, uh, at one point, at one uh, marina, I remember, it's a very small place. Like We wouldn't call it a lake or a pond. Um, but it was very stinky. It was very full of cyanobacteria. Um, the day after we were there to treat, we met the guy uh, that lives the closest there, three meters away from the waterline. And he told us that that's the first time in weeks that he went out of his house to enjoy the afternoon breeze. Until then, he had his windows shut because he couldn't stand the smell, couldn't stand the stench. People who are who are listening and may be interested in looking more into the the treatments that the company's done and how they do it and um, and the results of the treatments, how can they get more information on that? We have videos uh, in our YouTube channel. Our website that keeps uh, improving and uh, developing has uh, case studies. If anybody really, really wants, I have a 1,300 and something page report on uh, one of uh, the treatments we had in uh, Mineola, a lake in Florida. And if you really want to, I have a few thousand more pages of reports uh, accumulated uh, throughout the years. Yeah, that sounds that sounds great. Yeah, um, I, I like that. So on the website, there's a, there's a case studies available to to yes. read a, a little bit more on the treatments and and what happened. On our website, we put uh, a, a, let's say a skeleton report, just a an example, a bit of information where we were, what we did, uh, how it looked before, after, and some uh, data. If anybody within Blue Green uh, would like uh, the full uh, uh, the full report and all the details, they're more than welcome to spend a couple of days reading those things. So, as somebody who has been in in the company from the very beginning, you've seen it um, evolve and change. Where do you think it's going from here? We're going to have more bases around the world. More people who know our name and look for us for a solution. Uh, to their problems. People will ask for us to come to their uh, territories and uh, solve problems that they have. And we receive those questions and those uh, requests already in places we are in or near them. For example, from Canada and when we treated the US. We'll have more personnel on the ground. They'll be more independent on going around and offering our solutions we'll be able to treat more areas, more territories. We'll be able to produce our material locally. We'll be able to monitor where a bloom is 
and to a degree predict where it will be that will allow us to prepare ahead or even give a heads up uh, to the people around. Why, why would that be important to, to have a predictive capability? It's a great question, a bit off topic, but it's a lot easier to prevent a bloom than to solve the problem once it occurred. If I'll know that there is a high likelihood that within the next coming 10 days, there'll be a bloom popping up in one lake or another, I can give treatment to that area before the bloom starts, preventing it from occurring in the first place. The amount of effort and the amount of material I'll need to do that is a fraction of what will happen if I'll wait until an emergency. But do you think you'll be able to convince people to... uh to spend money on a problem that they can't yet see or smell themselves. Absolutely. Proof is in the pudding. When we'll show them that our neighbors, their neighbors, treated ahead because we told him and he didn't get a bloom, well, they did, they'll understand. When we, I'll give you another example. In Mineola, the lake in Florida, we were hired not to treat a problem, not to uh, solve a crisis, but to prevent it from happening in the first place. Mineola is not a very large lake, but is uh, one of a, a few lakes in a chain, daisy chain, one after the other. The lake upstream had a massive bloom uh, in the period we had, and we knew, we, saw, we could see water with a bloom, a lot of uh, organic material pouring into Lake Mineola. And, but although that, although it happened, we were able to prevent a bloom from occurring. We saved the uh, the area. We managed to keep it bloom free. We can do that. That's because we know what to look for. We know how to treat and when to treat, and of course with what. That will allow us to use a lot less material in a lot less effort. When other people are going to see it around the world, when other people will realize that treating in advance would solve them having the problem in the first place and money and effort and labor, they'll start doing it because, well, it works. You don't have to. You can wait and suffer the consequences. Now, I I remember in the orientation, you gave a talk about kind of cyanobacteria in general, and then you also spoke about all the different methods of treatment that exist out there. And there's a lot of companies that treat cyanobacteria in a lot of different ways. So I want to ask you a a tough question here, and that's why blue-green? If I've got an an algae problem, if I've got a bloom in my lake, why turn turn to blue-green instead of one of the uh, competitors in the field? As you mentioned, those alternatives are already in the market. They have, mostly they have one big problem. They don't work, at least not in the large scale that is needed. If you have a small pond, uh, something uh, just a few acres, less than that, they could work with a stretch, some of them, some are not. But Lagard uh, and the Lagard technology and our products, they're more efficient. As I mentioned before, uh, the proof is in the pudding. People see how efficient our materials are. They can 
see how easy it is to apply the materials. You don't need specialized equipment or highly trained personnel or gallons of gallons of gallons of uh, product in order to treat uh, um, any like our development. Uh, the fact that we designed the product to act the way it is in the water. We can touch uh, a bit uh, about that uh, later. But we developed the product. We developed the, uh, the technology, what we have now and the ones uh, that are still uh, being processed and we still work on from understanding. Where the basis is to understand cyanobacteria, to understand their physiology and where they come from and how can we address it. We started uh, this, uh, uh, this talk by mentioning uh, my history in the Hebrew University. That's what we did. We learned about cyanobacteria, how they react with the environment, what's their physiological conditions that they like or what buttons we can push. And that's how Lagarde uh, technology was developed. Understanding that leads us to a better solution. It's more efficient. Also, it saves money and effort, but it actually works. So I'm going to continue with these these tough questions because uh, you seem to have good good answers for them. Now, I, I come from a, an ecology background, and, and I like to focus on uh, the bigger picture, the ecosystem as a whole. And now I'm going to I'm going to give an example of. Are you familiar with the uh, cat in the hat, the Dr. Seuss book, where there's a little pink stain on like a tub or something like that, and then they wipe it with the cloth, and it transfers to a cloth, and then they move it to another place and another place, and it's kind of just. Instead of actually dealing with the problem, it's just reallocating or redistributing the problem. So that that example could apply when you're treating, you know, something in in an ecosystem. So, for example, we know that you know there was, especially in the nineteen was it nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, a crisis of um, available nitrogen for agriculture. And so they developed a way of uh, of you know developing fertilizers. And that essentially saved tons and tons of people from starvation because it really improved agriculture. But it did create another problem, kind of shifting from one problem to another, where now you have access um, nutrients that are spilling off from agriculture into freshwater ecosystems that then create um, these algal blooms. So how do we know and how do we ensure that our treatment isn't just another um, step in that in that same direction of we're just dealing with with a problem by moving the problem on down on down the ladder to a to a different area. It's a good question, but your analogy is um, not complete or is a bit wrong. In Dr. Seuss' example, they take the dirt and move it from one part to another. Our problem is that the cyanobacteria or or dirt in that analogy keeps growing. It's always there. It's always, it always was there. And it always should be there in balance with the rest of the ecosystem. As I mentioned before, cyanobacteria is not a problem, but sometimes they take over and form the bloom. And that's what we're solving. When we treat a lake, we don't want to bleach it and turning it into a swimming pool uh, with uh, nothing else in it. We want to restore the natural balance. Cyanobacteria belongs there, eukaryotes belong there, fish, crabs, everything. When they're balanced, after we take down cyanobacteria a few notches back to their place, other organisms can grow. They fill in the niche. There is no vacuum in nature. They fill in the niche, they take over back the area they were in, 
and then they are the first buffer against reemergence of cyanobacteria the next time. I'll give you an example. Once upon a time, many years ago, one of our first treatments was in uh, Russia, in uh, Kazan. We treated, it was great, it worked, everything was fine. About a year later, we got a uh, we got con- we got an email from uh, the person uh, over there asking, could it be that our material still works? Apparently, what happened at the time they expected the cyanobacteria bloom because they had it year after year after year, they didn't. Our treatment knocked down cyanobacteria. Yes, we could measure it, we could see it. That was easy enough to spot. But that was the first uh, case that we saw in a large scale in the field the effect of the balance, of the reemergence of the beneficial also cyanobacteria and also alga and the environment as itself, the whole ecosystem. They kept cyanobacteria at bay. Not to say that they'll never ever be able to grow back again, but the lake, that lake is healthier. And that's what we offer. That's our solution. We don't want to kill everything. It is possible, but that's not our game. That's not our goal. We're taking down cyanobacteria that took over, mostly cyanobacteria. It could be also alga, but we take down that uh, species, that strain down, let the lake go back to balance, and then it holds itself. If need be, you can treat small doses, as I said before, um, a lot less effort over time, just to make sure it doesn't take over again. To your question and example, nutrients are important. Without nutrients, nothing's going to grow. But between the levels that we have now in the water and the levels cyanobacteria can deal with and manage with, there is a whole wide range. For example, there are strains of cyanobacteria that are known to take uh, nitrogen out of the air, out of the atmosphere. Just fixate nitrogen if you, for whatever reason, manage to reduce nitrogen from uh, coming into the lake from external sources, it will still be fine. Uh, the population might change towards those uh, types, those uh, organisms. They were developed back in the day in uh, situations that uh, nutrients were scarce. They're very good. They're very efficient in coping with very little. To reduce nutrients to a level that they're not going to grow in means that also nothing else would grow. And that's not something you want to see in our lakes. So people often, and and you can say what you can about what's uh, innovative about the treatment that blue-green applies, but it is chemical-based in the end. And people often hear that and uh, and are hesitant. So why is it that... um, how can you reassure them that, that we have a chemical-based treatment, but it won't have a negative impact on their body of water and on the, the other uh, animals and organisms in that water? The word chemical sounds very harsh and uh, brings uh, thoughts and memories of uh, movies or uh, scientific sci-fi uh, books that of a chemical spill and uh, a Godzilla emerging uh, out of the ocean. But everything is chemical. Also, what we call organic, organic food, is all chemicals. We just need to understand what's their role, how they perform, what will happen to them in the end. Yes, our uh, product, Legard Blue, based on copper sulfate pentahydrate, does have a residue of uh, 
copper irons in the water. But the amount of material you would need in order to treat a bloom is minimal. One, a lot less magnitude, less than what you would have without our product. Copper sulfate used to be treated generically, used to be applied to water in order to solve a problem, but they needed a whole lot of it. Being able to change the paradigm, change the way the material is distributed in the water allows us to use a lot less. A lot less because it's more efficient, a lot less because we recommend treating it before you have a bloom, a lot less because we know how to apply it, we know when to apply it, where to apply it. And on top of all of that, our products, not like we just made something and we decided to dump it into the lake, into the water. We abide by uh, uh, local regulations, uh, for example, the EPA. The EPA had to approve our product before we could even uh, think of it treating anything. We have NSF 60 uh, certification. NSF 60, the NSF as a whole and the NSF 60 in particular, is a certificate relates to drinking water quality. If you'll uh, take a water bottle, uh, you might see it uh, stump uh, in there. Somebody regulates us. We abide by the strictest regulations we could find. Our materials are safe for use when you apply it in the proper time and the proper amounts as stated uh, on the label itself. It can solve the problem without having any risk. When you have, for example, copper uh, tubing in your house and that's how you get your drinking water, that's the same uh, threshold, the same uh, criteria. We need to abide by those uh, regulations, those uh, rules. And on top of all of that, besides that, I give a lot of example of uh, copper, we have uh, also Lagard Oxy based on a different material, uh, sodium uh, percarbonate. When it breaks down after uh, touching organic matter in the water, it breaks down to water and oxygen. It leaves no residue. The EPA itself stated so in, in their own publications. Can it, it is what it can be considered as the green solution. It has no leftover, certainly not as chemical, chemical with air quotes, as the others. It's true. You do have a good answer for everything, I see. We are, we are reaching the, the end of the podcast here, so I do want to wrap it up with, uh, with one last question, and that is, what, uh, what message do you have to any new blue-greeners or any future prospective blue-greeners? Ah, well, that is a tough one. What should I tell? What would be the message? Well, you're in a company that saves the world, helps people. You're in a company that see problems that can be solved and addresses them. While doing so, have fun. Work here is not boring. Uh, I have a day in the office, a day in the lake, uh, flying a drone. Uh, they send me off across the world to sail on, on another boat, uh, uh, fish out uh, some cyanobacteria. It's very diverse. There is a lot of things to do. There is a lot of things yet to develop. If you have an idea, if you have a passion of something, see how it can work out uh, within your uh, job. If you have ideas, let us know. If you have uh, development, be happy to hear about it. It's just fun. Enjoy the work and save the world as you go along with it. Yeah, 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 that too. Oh, make money as well. Very important. Make money, save the world, have fun. I like it. There you go. The three, the three pillars right there. 
Scotty, it was a, a real pleasure talking with you. I, I love getting into the science and, and hearing about you and your background. I'll see you in the office or, or in the field. And thank you. Thank you again for joining us. Until next time. Thank you for listening to another podcast from Blue Green Water Technologies. Blue Green is a global water tech science company operating out of the United States, South Africa, China, and Israel. We believe that through big data analytics and field experiments, we can make water safe in a world where our critical resources are increasingly under threat. See you next time on Meet the Blue Greeners.